You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us now open God's Holy Word together, and we will read in the first place from the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter. We'll read from chapter 15, the verses 1 to 28, and then we will turn to the first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, the verses 1 through 12. We begin then with the Word of God in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God 
may be all in all. We turn now to the first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. The text for the sermon is taken from the next portion of the letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, the verses 13 to 18. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever we work with the Scriptures, one of the key ways of handling the Scripture is to keep in mind the context If you fail to do that, you might come up with all kinds of statements that sound kind of biblical. But really, if you really analyze it, it is more a biblicism. And of course, it confuses people because it comes in biblical terms. But biblicism is not biblical. Biblicism is simply using Bible words without regard to where it is found in the Scriptures. That's also important to keep in mind as we approach our text for this morning. You could easily say, well, here we have interesting things about when the Lord Jesus Christ will come again. And undoubtedly, those kind of things are talked about in this passage. But we should keep in mind that the general context of our text is that it is found in a chapter that 
is very practical. It's dealing with how to live as Christians. Really, that's why we also read the introductory verses of the chapter, beginning at chapter 4, verse 1. You can notice that in this particular chapter, after having dealt with various items, then Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, the three authors of this letter, they, they begin to lay out the practical implications of what they have been speaking about. And you can say in the process they lay out the fundamentals of sanctified Christian living. And of course, on the top of the list, we could see there the emphasis on sexual purity, because they point out God has called us to holiness. And secondly, there was the emphasis to work diligently, not just for the sake of working diligently, but as an expression of brotherly love and also in the process of making a good statement to the community at large. So we see that in these two situations, there was, of course, instruction in sanctified Christian living, but also there was an explanation because the Spirit not only tells us what to do, but also why it should be done. And now the portion of the letter that serves as our text for this morning continues then to lay down fundamentals of sanctified Christian living. And it teaches us how Christians should deal with death. Because there is a distinctly Christian way of facing death and grieving over those who have died. And not only do we get instruction how we should behave in a situation like that, but again also there is an explanation as to why. Again, the Spirit doesn't leave us in the dark. He tells us, do this, and this is why you should do it. And that we are dealing with death comes out at the beginning of our text as it speaks about those who are asleep. This was a common way of describing those who had died even in the pagan world. You know, in the Old Testament, we come across expressions like a certain king who died and who then slept with his fathers, which means he was buried perhaps in a a family tomb. So it is a very broad, a very general statement to describe people who have died, but we should recognize that even though the pagans also would use an expression like that, when they spoke of death as sleep, This did not mean that they believed that people would awake from that sleep. Really, it was seen as a sleep from which there was no hope of ever awakening again. In that very thought, of course, that it was a permanent sleep would shape the way people not only faced death, but also how they would mourn over those who had died. Because death had a note of finality. But now over against this kind of hopeless grieving, Paul and his companions remind their readers of of the Christian perspective. Now the fact that they had to go into details about this should not be taken that they had failed to instruct the Thessalonians about these matters when they had been in their midst, even though it had been only a relatively short stay. No, they had talked about these kind of things, and just like the previous matters, namely sexual purity and how to behave in brotherly love by being diligent in your work. They had taught about these things previously, but now there came a point of needing to bring about reinforcement. And in that respect also we can notice, really you could say, 
The three words critical for understanding the whole process of our sanctification. We also notice that in our scripture reading, namely the three words, more and more. That's the essence of Christian teaching. You don't just say it once and then people get it and they implement it right away. If it was that way, you wouldn't need ministers. But the nature of the matter is that we need to be reinforced. We hear it once, but we forget or we need to be encouraged so that we may may hear things more and more, and in that way grow more and more in the way of the Lord. In the same way, we realize how important it is for ourselves to be reminded, to be encouraged, to be redirected again of the hope that we have as Christians in the face of death. Now this hope that we speak about is not left undefined. Oh, it is the hope of the resurrection of the body. Or to use sleep terminology, it is the hope that the believers who have gone to sleep will awake from the slumber of death. So you see already from, from the believer's perspective, the grave in essence is a bed. You could say it is, it is a resting place. And it is worthwhile to point out that our word cemetery is actually derived from the root word used here in the Greek for those who have fallen asleep. And therefore, came across it in one place that you could say a cemetery is really a dormitory if you look at it from a Christian perspective. And contrary to the popular way of speaking of the grave as someone's final resting place, in fact, it is, from a Christian perspective, only a temporary resting place. And now while the overall purpose of this passage is to give direction in another fundamental of sanctified living, namely how to deal with death, we can notice then that Paul and his companions do that by pointing to one of the fundamentals of Christian doctrine. Doctrine and living, they always go together. Doctrine is always the foundation of Christian living. And that fundamental doctrine is the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how this is the basis and the guarantee of the resurrection of all those who believe in him. Now we should recognize it was already a fundamental point for the believers even before the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth that there would be a resurrection of God's people. And this belief in the resurrection of the body was, for example, the reason that Abraham took such care to find a proper burial place for Sarah. Because he was simply trying to find a proper place to put her to rest, to wait for her wake-up call. And also during our Lord's ministry, he repeatedly spoke about the resurrection of the dead. We see it, for example, in his teaching as found in John 5, verse 25 to 29, where he speaks about the resurrection unto life and unto judgment. And in John 6, he describes himself as the bread of life. And he speaks about those who believe in him and how he will raise them up at the last day. Let me think also of his whole discussion with Mary when Lazarus had died. And he also indicated that he was the resurrection and the life. 
So in that respect, the whole hope of the resurrection was, was not something new. The Lord Jesus Christ came up with it. It was a fundamental teaching already in the Old Testament time throughout his ministry. And really, how ingrained the hope of the resurrection was in the minds of God's covenant people comes out even in the tension between the Pharisees and the more, you could say, worldly-oriented, the Greek-oriented Sadducees. Because you know, at one point during his ministry, the Apostle Paul was brought before the Sanhedrin, which consisted of Pharisees and Sadducees. And then, as Paul saw the whole situation there, he managed to deflect their anger towards him, and he deflected the whole discussion that was developing by crying out that he was a Pharisee, and he was on trial for believing in the resurrection of the dead. And the result was that all of a sudden, the Pharisees and Sadducees, who had been united in their enmity of Paul, then turned against each other. Because then the Pharisees figured, well, Paul is not wrong in that. We stand on his side, and we disagree with you, Sadducees. And so they forgot about Apostle Paul for a while, till it all settled down again. But it shows again how deeply ingrained the hope of the resurrection was among the people of God. And then perhaps the most powerful words of Paul about the resurrection are found in what is often called the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, where he also listed among the fundamental doctrines he had received and had passed on. And he then explained that if you take away the resurrection, you take away the gospel. And then also he moves on in that chapter from speaking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ to speaking about the resurrection of the believers. Therefore, the Christian hope in the face of death is, therefore, that as Jesus Christ arose from the dead, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And undoubtedly, you could say, well, we all know this. After all, we, we confess it every Sunday in the creed, that we believe the resurrection of the body. And yet we need to hear it more and more. To be reminded, to be reinforced, to be encouraged to hold on to this. Because you know, brothers and sisters, it happens all too easily that that we say it with words and we know it academically, but but then when the reality of life makes us face death or the, the hint of death, even as it comes, for example, in sickness. Sickness is a reminder that our bodies are, are decaying. Then, all too often, all too easily, God's people can forget their glorious confession, their great hope. And then we also begin to face the matters of health as if it is the end of the world, if we don't get cured of whatever ailment comes our way. Because also God's people, they desire to live. And God's people, they, de- they will seek whatever means are available to keep on living, or as people even say, well, I cheated death. Now, without doubt, we should long for health and life so we can serve the Lord. That's how he made us, to live on this world, in our bodies, to serve him. And we may pursue the means the Lord has given us, And he has indeed given us many means in our age. Things our forefathers couldn't even dream of. However, with our Christian hope, 
It is not the end of the world if health fails us temporarily or even completely. So when it comes right down to it, if our health fails us completely and we die, well, we recognize death in the end is merely sleep from which one day we will awaken in the world that is to come. And that is the reason that we grieve differently from the world. But at the same time, there is more. For not only does the fact of the resurrection of the body, as is foreshadowed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, help us in dealing with death, but also the manner. Now, reading between the lines, we get the impression that, that here really Paul and his companions were addressing the core concern of the Thessalonians. Because the Thessalonians seem to be perturbed by the fact that, that some believers in their midst had died before the appearing of the Lord in glory. You should understand how, how fervent that hope was among the first generation Christians. As they heard the gospel, they thought Jesus would come within weeks, if not months, at the most a few years. But then, of course, it happened that some believers, they died because the Lord Jesus seemed to take longer than, than expected. And what really troubled the believers who were left behind is that they thought, now, what does this mean with respect to their sharing in that great event when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in glory? Are they going to miss out on that glorious event? Notice how they do not speak about the second coming of the Lord. Scripture never uses that term. But it speaks about the, the appearing, the coming of the Lord. And the particular word used there, that is also used, for example, to describe how a king or a very important official in the empire would come to a province or city in an official visitation to deal with all the matters that needed to be dealt with. Now, within a religious setting, it was the meaning of the coming of God to make his presence felt by revealing his power. Now, you'll understand that every believer who loves the Lord Jesus would love to witness this great event. And in answering this concern, Paul and his companions pass on some teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ about the resurrection that actually is explained nowhere else in the Scriptures. But like much of the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, it would have circulated initially all in oral form. Not even much, but all the initial teaching was an oral form. And we gather this from verse 15, where Paul and his companions show the trustworthiness of what they are saying by indicating that here they have a word from the Lord Jesus himself. And what we learn is that the coming of the Lord in glory is going to be experienced by all the believers, no matter at which point in history they lived. And this means that if the Lord Jesus Christ would appear tomorrow, then Adam, Abraham, and the Apostle Paul will have the same experience of that appearing as we who are, who are living at that particular time. And we learn this from verse 16, where we are told that those who are left until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. I were not left in the dark. 
as to how this can be. But we learn that the coming of our Lord in glory, in essence, will begin with a wake-up call to those who are asleep, those who have died. There's actually a threefold wake-up call meant to bring the whole world to attention. But it will affect the sleepers, that is, the dead in Christ, first. Because we read that there will be a loud command. You know what is the term that refers to the way that a commander of an army would call his soldiers to attention. They could be sleeping in their tents, and all of a sudden the enemy was there. Well, they had to be aroused very quickly. It would be a, a, a loud command from the voice of the commander. Call it cannot be ignored. We are reminded here of what we read in John 5, verse 25 to 30. I referred to that passage earlier about the voice of the Lord Jesus waking up the dead and coming alive. And so based on the words of John 5, we can conclude that it is the Lord Jesus himself who will give forth this loud command as he utters his cry. And those next two aspects of the wake-up call bring to mind the picture of a king approaching a city as he is preceded by messengers who, who call the people to attention. There is the call of the archangel. You know, Scripture only gives us two names of angels, Gabriel and Michael. We're not told which one, but one of the archangels will, will indeed call out. And then there is the blowing of the trumpet. You can almost envision the procession. You know, sometimes you see it in these representations of the olden days, the king in his carriage coming down the road, but ahead of him there is the entourage, they're blowing the trumpets. Everyone knows, the whole city knows, the king is on his way. No one can sleep through an event like that. Now I draw your attention to this very public appearance of the Lord. No one, indeed not even the dead, can sleep through this event. And we are dealing here with the fulfillment of the message that the angels also spoke after the Lord Jesus Christ had ascended into heaven. That he would come back as they had seen him go. He would come back visibly. Now we should note that this particular passage is not addressing what is going to happen to unbelievers. That's, that's not the concern of this particular passage. But very clearly, we are dealing here with the events of, of the last day of the age. The day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. And I stress that, that our passage is dealing with the final event of the history of this world before the new world comes into being. Because this passage is often really ripped out of context by people who, who speak about the rapture. And I wouldn't be surprised that many of you, even perhaps especially young people, as they get exposed to broader Christian circles, come across this term, the rapture. It's common among people, especially who come from a Pentecostal-type church or other churches that really have arisen within the last 150 years or so, like Christian Missionary Alliance. also tends to be very strong in Baptist circles. And sometimes even, again, in our age, it was very strong in the 70s, Maybe the older generations remembers Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth kind of things, but it's, it's very common again in our age to see bumper stickers that say, if this car is moving without a driver, I've been raptured. It's also the basic premise in a very popular book series 
called left behind. And now in popular theological terms, we are dealing here with what is called dispensationalist thinking or premillennialism. Now where did they get this from? This idea of the rapture, because we don't see that word in our English translation. Well, it comes from the Latin translation of the phrase caught up. And in dispensationalist thinking, the words of our text are used to to describe how the Lord Jesus Christ at some point is going to come and all of a sudden snatch the believers out of the earth who will then go with him to heaven. From there they will reign while while the earth continues. Like I said earlier, if people were driving in their cars and they were a believer, they would be raptured and the cars would keep on going. But the world keeps on going. But without Christians, that's how people perceive it in dispensationalist thinking. And then they envisage a long time of tribulation when the Antichrist will appear. And they say that at the end of that period, then Christ will return to earth in power and great glory. It's very prevalent. As I said, I'm sure many of our young people, students at post-secondary schools have come across this kind of thinking, but we should recognize that when you read our passage carefully, in context, seeing what Paul and his companions are writing about, then you recognize that this is a misreading. For our text speaks about the appearance of the Lord Jesus on the last day, which is so obvious, so loud, and so clear, that no one will fail to notice. No one will sleep through it. This clearly is the culmination of the age, or what we say, the consummation. And what we learn here then about the appearing of the Lord is truly amazing. But we learn from the letter to the Corinthians that the whole coming of our Lord, if you really think about it, Paul says it will take place in the twinkling of an eye. But what we learn here is that even though in the end it takes place in the twinkling of an eye, nevertheless in that twinkling of an eye there are a series of events, a sequence that will take place. But note well then how this threefold wake-up call will cause the believers who have fallen asleep to wake from their sleep. No matter how long they have been sleeping, the sleep of death. For we read, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Notice that well. First. And now try to picture this in your mind. Because it is not the case that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come from heaven and all the saints who have gone before are kind of coming with him to meet the saints who are here on the earth. It's not the case that only a small segment of the church will see him come in glory. Rather, the coming of our Lord Jesus in glory is going to be experienced by the Catholic Church, the church of all ages, the church since Abel, the first to die for the faith. Because all the believers who have died in the Lord will first be made alive. And that means that every believer will have the same vantage point, which is here on this earth, will have the same vantage point to see the Lord Jesus Christ in his moment of glory. That's the glorious revelation in our passage, that the, the church in its totality, the bride, will see the bridegroom come to get her. For once the dead in Christ have been raised, and those who are still alive 
they are going to be pulled up along with them in their movement towards their king. They're all going to meet him, to greet him, and to be with him forever. But what a perspective we get, brothers and sisters. You know, many of us, probably all of us in one way or another, even the youngest will have gone through this experience where we've had to put a loved one to bed in the cemetery. And there may be situations in your life right now where loved ones are nearing the end of their earthly journey. You could say that they're getting sleepy. There may be some serious health situations. And we may may wonder ourselves whether the Lord will come in our lifetime or whether we will have to experience the sleep of death first. Yet whatever may happen, one thing is for sure. Not only are we certain of the resurrection from the dead, we are certain that every believer will share in that great experience of seeing the Lord, the bridegroom, come in glory to earth. Because death, even though it is still the last enemy you could say, death is not going to rob the believers of that experience. And now I repeat, this does not mean that we can be indifferent to health concerns, nor does it mean that we should never shed a tear when loved ones are sick or when they die. Because, you know, sickness and death are forever reminders that we live in a world under the curse because of sin. And longing for health and the shedding of tears over sickness and death, that's normal. Christians still grieve, but we learn they grieve differently. Because at the end of the day, there is the gospel of the resurrection of the body and the sharing in the tremendous experience by each and every believer of seeing the bridegroom, our Lord Jesus Christ, come for his bride. And no matter how long one has been asleep, when the wake-up call comes, everyone will awaken and will join those who are alive, who are left, to meet the Lord in the air and to be with him always. And therefore, beloved, in the face of death, encourage one another with these words. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.